Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. We made it to the end of another week. Happy Friday. We've got good, crazy, and crazy martinis for conservatives today as we wrap up the week. And Jim, let's dive right in with our good. We don't know exactly what the balance is going to be in the House of Representatives. Right now, foxnews.com, which all conservatives love for their political forecasting, has the House at uh, 219 for the Democrats, 202 for Republicans, which means there's 14 seats they haven't called yet over at NBC. uh, They've uh, gone to the point of projecting the whole thing. They think it's going to be 224 to 211 Democrats. But there are still several races that have yet to be called. And in, I would say, a healthy number of those races, the Republican, at least at present, has the lead. So one of the things that's been mentioned in the last couple of days is usually when you have a new administration, and at this point it certainly looks like there will be a new administration, uh, you have folks who are in the legislative branch who would like to be in the executive branch. We talked even before the election about how Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders would love to have cabinet positions. Same thing in the House, but this could be complicated by the fact that the Republicans did so well in the House elections this year. On Twitter, there was this back and forth uh, yesterday, starting with a guy named Mel Wong, who says, we're kind of at that point that any House Democrats hoping to be nominated for anything from cabinet to ambassadorships probably can kiss those dreams goodbye. A few empty seats for a few months could mean losing on key votes or even the majority outright during a pivotal period. And then Kyle Kondik, who works for Larry Sabato, uh, followed that up with saying, yep, margin may be so narrow the caucus won't be able to afford any vacancies. And that's because uh, when there are House vacancies, the governors of those states do not appoint replacements like they can for Senate vacancies. They have to call special elections and the seat is vacant until that election takes place. So, Jim, I don't know how tight this is going to be, but uh, there's a lot of far left people in the uh, House Democratic caucus. So the fact that they might not be able to get to the uh, potential Biden administration, that's good news. Yeah. So right now, look, you can look at the New York Times. You can look at Politico. I like the Politico map because it doesn't just call the district. It also tells you who is ahead. Uh, Right now, they have 202 seats that are called for Republicans. If you add up all the other Republican leading, it gets you to 213. Now, it's possible you'll see some flips towards the end. But uh, I went through them one by one in the corner a couple of days ago and they, you know, most of them look pretty safe. I'm not going to guarantee it. We, we all know about, you know, absentees coming in California and New York. These are states that are very slow counting for the votes, but most of them are now in the several thousand range. Some of them are, are, you know, well beyond that, particularly the ones up in New York, you know, I I think you can get to 213 and a little detail about the, at least the Politico map. If you look down at the state of Louisiana, the fifth district uh, U S house race went to a runoff. But the runoff is between two Republicans. So if you're the Republicans, you feel pretty good about uh, (laughs) keeping that one. That gets you to 214. And remember, with 218, you control the chamber. Uh, Democrats are now at 219 in in called races. So they're going to have it, but they're not going to have a particularly big margin. So not only is that true about uh, picking House Democrats to become cabinet secretaries or undersecretaries or heads of agencies or things like that, First of all, Democrats are reaching the point where if they have a if they're scheduled to come back Monday or Tuesday in the week 
and one or two flights coming in from California are delayed, you might not have enough people <laughs> to win the vote. You might have to push back the vote because one, you know, flight of uh, people coming in from the West Coast or, you know, one series of thunderstorms over one part of the country could genuinely prevent you from having the majority in the chamber. Uh, and the second thing to kind of keep in mind in all this is that, you know, every U.S. House, almost every cycle has a couple of uh, unexpected vacancies. Unfortunately, members of Congress pass away. Sometimes they resign in scandal. Sometimes they get some limited time offer of a lucrative public uh, private sector gig. Um, sometimes they step down. You know, sometimes they have health issues. We, we do have a, a coronavirus pandemic going on. So, you know, you really don't want to go into this with a just a handful of seats guaranteeing your majority. I don't think we'll reach a point where vacancies would flip control of the chamber between now and the midterm elections of 2022, but you never quite know. And it, like I said, it could really make uh, any party line vote much more complicated. So the Republicans did not win the House, but boy, they, they came like really, for the, for the Democrats, uncomfortably close. And obviously, if you look at 2022 and you've got a, you know, you can target 10 seats, 20 seats, you know, you really wouldn't need too much more than that uh, to feel really good about your chances of flipping the chamber in the upcoming midterms. I also wonder what the complexion of the Democratic caucus is looking like, because I'm thinking back to 2010 when they jammed uh, Obamacare through and they had a lot of votes to spare. So there were at least a handful. I don't remember exactly how many Democrats voted no on that, but uh, it wasn't a small number. But uh, in true Pelosi fashion, she made sure she, of course, had the votes to actually get it across while letting the more moderate members protect themselves. Didn't necessarily work for all of them. Some of them retired. Some of them got primaried and some of them got beat by Republicans. And so, Jim, I think a decade later, we're looking at a very different complexion here where there just aren't a lot of moderates left anymore, at least ones that would be willing to really cross over and and kill a Democratic piece of legislation by voting with the Republicans. That's always been fairly rare. And now with so many far lefties in the caucus, I don't think you're going to see a lot of defections. Uh, there has also been folks out there saying, well, now that it's this tight, Pelosi uh, had 10 to 15 Democrats vote against her in the last speaker election. She might not be able to hang on, but I haven't seen anybody else throw their hat in the ring. So uh, while that would be a lovely thing to happen, depending on who the challenger might be, uh, I, I wouldn't write off Nancy Pelosi just yet. Yeah, I mean, I want one of the great if you feel like there's something wrong with the Democratic Party, either because you're right of center and you don't agree with them very much like you or I, or if you're a Democrat and you really want to see them win, you want to see a big lasting House majority, you might look at the fact that they have not changed the speaker. And not just that they're not likely to change the speaker. We really haven't seen or heard about any serious push to replace Nancy Pelosi since the election. I get there's time between now and January. It's possible somebody will throw their hat in the ring, but uh, not much buzz. And you know, I, looking ahead, it is likely that there are a bunch of Republican seats in places like Orange County, California, that are always going to be competitive. I don't think that means that Young Kim and Michelle Steele are uh, one-termers. You know, they're probably going to have to fight for it in the midterms. They're probably never going to have an easy race. But, you know, again, having two of the three first Korean-American uh, women in Congress probably helps in those districts. Uh, right now, it looks like Burgess Owens is ahead by a bunch. Uh, McAdams won that one by when I say a bunch, I mean like a couple hundred votes. Um, I'm sorry, 2,000 votes. McAdams won by like 700, 800 two years earlier. You know, Utah's fourth district is probably going to be a tight fight for, you know, until for until the district lines get redrawn. Um, a bunch of these house seats in the, in the middle of New York, outside of New York City, kind of the middle range of the state. 
there, you know, you're going to have to defend those seats. But I also think if you're a Democrat, you look at this and you're like, okay, well, you just had a presidential election level turnout. You had Trump there, who who was generally pretty darn good for Democratic turnout, as well as being pretty, and we should point out, pretty good for Republican turnout. I don't know how much low-hanging fruit there is. I, I think Joe Cunningham winning in, like, South Carolina's first district was kind of a fluke in 2018. It was really helped by Mark Sanford not helping the Republican who beat him in the primary. And I don't think that... Uh, Nancy Mace is going to be a chip shot to knock off in any, you know, cycle coming ahead. So if you're the Democrats, there's not a, there's some low hanging fruit, but really no gimmies. Whereas the Republicans, you know, the bad news about losing in a landslide like 2018 is that you go back to the, you know, the, the next year's election and there are five or six, whereas your candidate, you know, doesn't doesn't trip over their own shoelaces, should be able to win back. And of course, as we talked about over the past week or so, Republicans did much better than expected on maintaining majorities in state legislatures, which in most cases will be responsible for drawing district lines. So even on the current map, Republicans are looking pretty good in the 2022 midterms if they get to redraw the maps uh, to a little more of their favor uh, after two years of a possible Biden administration. uh, You got to like their chances even more. Yeah, right. although I, I know we want to move on, Greg, but there's one point that's going to jump. A lot of people have pointed out, you know, Republicans flipped the state legislature in New Hampshire, which should help them. Now, for those who can look at a map, New Hampshire has two congressional districts. <laughs> yes. So you could draw one really good for Republicans, but then that means all the other and the other one, and Democrats would have at least a competitive shot at that one. Or you could draw two, like when you only have two districts, there's just not how much redistricting you can do. The, the, the voters got to go somewhere. Yes. <laughs> Either they go into this one or they go into that one. There's not any, you, know, you can't trade them to Vermont as far as I know. All right, let's get to our crazies here. And uh, Jim, it is November 13th. But it's also holiday season, Thanksgiving, Christmas. It's the time that people usually spend more time focusing on charity, where they can give, making sure that nobody's going hungry during the holidays. Should be a priority all year round, of course. But uh, it's a time when, when more people focus about that. But some people think politics are more important than giving to charity. This all started with a tweet yesterday from Mark Cuban, owner of the Dallas Mavericks, Shark Tank, billionaire. Everybody, I think, knows who Mark Cuban is. He says, for those considering donating to Republicans or Democrats in the Georgia Senate runoffs, can you please reconsider and donate that money to your local food bank and organizations that can help those without food or shelter? Let's put Americans in need above politics. I'm thinking, okay, nice tweet. That's fine. John Legend. Very famous uh, singer, also a outspoken liberal, says, I get that politics is annoying and contentious, but the bottom line is that the Senate flipping would be far more impactful than a food bank donation. We need massive stimulus and aid to individuals and small businesses. Government needs to do this. Charity isn't sufficient. And then sometime later, he added, oh, oh I am doing both, by the way. So... <laughs> <laughs> Jim, what do you make of the idea that uh, the real charity is donating to Democrats who will give away money? That's exactly what the founders had in mind, right? I, I'm First of all, I'm really ho- I don't know if this is the case, but I'm just hoping Chrissy Teigen just gave him a very disapproving look. <laughs> and that's what prompted that, that quick additional, and, and I'm going to give money to charity too. Yeah. So here's the thing. When you say impactful, what do we mean? Because if you give to a food bank and your donation at that food bank is whether they help 41 families instead of 40 families. Well, to that 41st family, your donation just made all the difference of the world. That That's pretty darn impactful. Right? I think I saw the, the two Republican candidates have already raised something like $32 million uh, in, in, in their race. 
Now, we've talked in previous podcasts, runoff elections in Georgia usually work out pretty well for the GOP. Doesn't guarantee this one. Doesn't mean this thing is, you know, locked and etched in stone. They, they got to hold the votes. But all other things being equal, Republicans should do okay in this one. We haven't even gotten to all the, you know, they, they Republicans saved up all their opposition research on Warnock until after the until after the general election. And now they're letting it all out there. If you're outside of the state of Georgia, you can do a heck of a lot more at your local food bank, at your local charities. You, you can do a lot more. And if you, if you want to do both, fine. If you want to do everything you can to help Democrats win the Senate, fine. But don't walk around and fool yourself that the way you fix the world, particularly your corner of the world, is by writing a check to a politician. And that applies Democrat or Republican, right? First of all, these guys are going to have tons of money. Second of all, every commercial break in Georgia between now and January is going to be full of attack ads. If your donation helped yet another, this candidate is in black and white and walking slowly in, in, you know, in slow motion and therefore... It, None of that stuff matters. Certainly not. You know, when, when you go to meet St. Peter at the pearly gates, he's not going to ask you what campaigns you donated to. He will ask what you did to help people who, you know, in your life. And that's a much bigger deal. And it's a little bit creepy. I'm not even going to get into John Legend playing Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ Superstar. Right. Like one more perfect irony of, of all this that, uh, you know, Greg, he's no Jim Caviezel. No disagreement there. The idea that we're actually having this argument now. That, no, no, no. Your donation is much better helping John Ossoff make an attack ad. It's, more, it's going to do more good there than it will in contributing to a food bank in your community. Come on. You know, that is a sign that partisan passions are now no longer like a healthy part of our democracy, but are like actively working against what we need now at a time when so many people are still, with the state of the economy, still having a hard time, more interest in food banks than ever before. Uh, this is a crazy martini, but it would double as a bad martini, Greg. Absolutely right. But what's the specific point? Is there a fulcrum where we went from, okay, we hire these people to do this job, which is what the founders had in mind, and the world's going to end if our side doesn't win the election. I mean, there are huge differences between the different parties. We talk about it all the time. They do matter. We're not saying that politics doesn't matter, but people just become distraught, and it's like they... They literally have mental breakdowns sometimes because their preferred candidate or their preferred party is not in control. And while we would obviously prefer Republicans in control, uh, it, we see it uh, all over the place. I mean, the people screaming at the wind uh, on Trump's inauguration day. And obviously there are going to be people very upset uh, if, in fact, uh, Trump has lost this election. And so where did we get to that point? And do we ever get out of it as long as government just keeps getting bigger and bigger? It's been around for a long time. One of my favorite stories of this is that early in his time as mayor at Burlington, eventually future Senator Bernie Sanders went to some United Way fundraiser, was asked to say a few marks, and he began by saying, I don't believe in charity, which is not the message of the day. <laughs> it was not what the United Way wanted to hear. And it created a kerfuffle, but Sanders went on to believe that he believed that every charity was an example of government failure. All of this should be held. Like, here's the thing. I can't help but get the feeling, Greg. That people who want the government to do it, to handle this, to take care of these problems, maybe they, they genuinely believe that's the better way to take care of these problems. It suggests they haven't really looked very closely at government's track record in this area. But I also kind of wonder if there's a little bit of like, I don't want to have to worry about it because the charity is asking me. You see Santa Claus on the, uh, the Salvation Army ringing his bell on the corner. He's not asking society at whole. He's, he's, you make, you, some people avoid eye contact. Right? That, that's asking you. You have the choice at that moment to put, at least put your pocket change in there. Put in a couple of bucks. Do something. You know, like you can make a difference there and you have to live with that recognition. 
taxes, government, these are big impersonal forces. You don't see them every day. So I have a sneaking suspicion that for some people, government should take care of this is a way of saying, I don't want to take care of this. I want these federal bureaucrats to take care of it. They've done a fantastic job with everything else in their life. But anyway, that's, now I'm ranting, Greg. No, so I'm a very dyspeptic mood this morning. <laughs> no, that's, that's a really good point because, first of all, giving money to the government is compulsory. There are problems. You can't just look away from the tax collector. You actually have to give the money, uh, whereas uh, it's voluntary when it comes to charity. But that is the way that I think our society generally functions best, where government is small and fairly competent at the few things that it's supposed to do. And the history of America, and it's, I know, it's changed a lot over many years, and it hasn't been this way for a long time, but neighbors and churches and those sorts of organizations are the ones supposed to be providing for people uh, who have fallen short or fallen on hard times or whatever it is, instead of the government constantly being expected to come to the rescue. We are living in difficult times where people fear having thought-provoking conversations about pressing issues. And although we're in the midst of an information explosion, there are a lot of forces aiming to distort what's true. I created The Bill Walton Show to provide a forum for in-depth, thought-provoking conversations with leaders, artists, entrepreneurs, and thinkers. Please join me at thebillwaltonshow.com to explore what's true, what's right, and what's next. On to our final crazy martini now. And Earlier this week, we had a good martini with Joe Manchin saying that Look, I am not a vote to kill the filibuster. I'm not a vote for Medicare for all. I'm not a vote to pack the courts. On and on and on. And some folks see that as uh, possibly uh, his way of making it less dark and dire if the Democrats do end up winning those Georgia Senate seats. But uh, Manchin doubled down on a tweet on Wednesday saying, quote, defund the police, defund my butt. Yeah, that's his actual word. I'm a proud West Virginia Democrat. We are the party of working men and women. We want to protect Americans' jobs and health care. We do not have some crazy socialist agenda, and we do not believe in defunding the police. Well, yesterday, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez apparently did not like that, did not like that at all, and she uh, tweeted back at Joe Manchin with no words. It was just a picture of her from some state of the union, one of the last two states of the union, where she's sitting there all dressed in white, not very happy with what the president just said. And then in front of her is Joe Manchin standing up and applauding. So maybe he was talking about coal or energy of, of some sort. Uh, but he is getting the death stare from AOC. And so that is her response to Joe Manchin saying that he has no intention of voting to defund the police. So, Jim, all seems hunky-dory inside the Democratic Party here, and apparently this is how we have squabbles in the 2020s. Yeah, now perhaps we shouldn't be surprised in that these prob- these two figures probably represent the two poles of the Democratic Party. You're, you're not going to find many Democrats are to the right of Joe Manchin, and you're not going to find too many Democrats to the left of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Now, I'm going to engage in what's going to sound like a little bit of millennial bashing. So for our millennial listeners, I want to point out, I recognize, first of all, like most of the people in our military right now are millennials and or getting into the top end of Generation Z. So we should not sit on our front porches and yell at young people to get off our lawns, right? There are plenty of wonderful young people in this world. And not every millennial looks like the guy who was in the full pajamas in the Obamacare ad. <laughs> I'm sure everyone remembers that image. By the way, if you're thinking, I don't, I'm pretty sure it was not John Ossoff. It's just a really <laughs> remarkable resemblance. 
But anyway, so yes, sorry. So not every millennial is like this, but there is something. I was, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is sort of like the Democrats' millennial version of Trump, in that she is in the way she uses social media. She uses Instagram as much, but obviously this is a you know, prominent case on Twitter. She'll never admit she's wrong about anything. She relentlessly attacks anyone who criticizes her, regardless of which party they're in. And I think the most interesting kind of facet of all this is that she sees posting this picture as winning the argument. And it's not. I just, you know, it's like, ooh, look at the way I look in this picture glaring at you. Take that, Joe Manchin. It doesn't work, right? Joe Manchin's argument, but Joe Manchin can point out that he won re-election in a state that Donald Trump was winning by like 30 or 40 points, right? So Don, Joe Manchin can say, look, I can show Democrats how to win in territory that is not considered necessarily friendly to Democrats anymore, right? If you're, if you're a Democrat and you want to win a state like Nebraska, if you want to win a state like basically any Western state that isn't on the coast, are you going to be better off listening to Joe Manchin or are you going to be better off listening to Beto O'Rourke if you want to win Texas? If you want to win Florida, if you want to win, you know, we'll, we'll see how things shake out in Georgia. Jamie Harrison was supposed to be the next big thing in the state of South Carolina. He was going to demonstrate that Democrats could win even in these deep red states. And he lost by 10, well within normal parameters. If you're a Democrat, you could look at a whole bunch of these states that are in the Midwest, that are in the South. That, by the way, have had Democrats not that long ago. And, you know, maybe not, you know, in the last 10 years, but certainly, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And, you know, Bill Clinton, remember, won the state of Kentucky, won the state of Tennessee, won the state of, of uh, Arkansas, won Louisiana. Bill Clinton won a whole bunch of states that are now considered super duper ruby red. Now, I, I've, you know, one, people might say, oh, my, well, because well, there's a Perot factor and all that stuff. Eh, there's a factor. But as one observed, Bill Clinton spent his life in Arkansas. Bill Clinton could never, you know, could never exhibit any sense of contempt for a Bubba. Bill Clinton's constituents were Bubba's, right? He, he couldn't run around talking about how terrible the South was. He was in the South. Could go on talking about how uh, whites were inherently racist, how males were inherently sexist. Uh, you know, Bill Clinton probably is the last person who's going to bring up that particular issue. <laughs> um, there's a whole sense in which you know, Bill Clinton had to like these people or else he never would have had a political career. You look all across the Democratic Party, and in particular in the AOC wing, you do see this contempt. You do see this sense of, we look down on people who don't vote for us. And they don't vote for us because they are ignorant. They don't vote for us because they are racist. They don't vote for us because they are xenophobic. They are bad people, right? Voting for us, they say, it's not really we're right on the policies or we have better ideas. We are a virtue. And if you vote for the other guys, there's something wrong with you. Gee, who, who could be shocked that that doesn't work? And I think this, people made the observation that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's district in New York City is more heavily Democratic than Liz Cheney's district in Wyoming is Republican. That's how Democratic it is. So she doesn't know the first thing about winning in a, in a, in a swing district in Florida or a swing district in anywhere, in, you know, anywhere else in the rest of the country. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez did one, you know, major accomplishment in her life. And I think we on the right should recognize that. She caught an incumbent sleeping. There was a guy who was convinced he was going to be secretary, the next uh, Speaker of the House someday. Uh, he didn't really need to, to, you know, worry about his primary. And she snuck up behind him, built up support, beat him by a couple of points. It was a big deal. She deserves credit for that. But she knows nothing about winning a general election in a competitive race, in a competitive part of the country. 
And, you know, she doesn't, I don't think she even realizes how irrelevant her advice and her philosophy is. The only good news out of all this, Greg, is that I understand she wants to go to Georgia to campaign for the Democrats. AOC, please do this. In fact, I think the, uh, I think the National Republican Senatorial Committee will pay for your plane ticket. You know, we talked earlier about Bloomberg and Schumer going through the rural areas of Georgia. Maybe she could join them on that tour. That would be be great for turnout. Maybe not the way she would think, but uh, great for turnout for the Republicans. Jim, I mentioned in uh, in the preface for this last martini that uh, some folks think it's all a smokescreen about Georgia. In fact, this is how Ted Cruz responded to AOC's tweet. He said, this is all theater. If Dems win in Georgia, Chuck Schumer will be terrified of being primaried from the left, which means AOC will effectively be Senate majority leader and Joe Manchin will dutifully obey just like he did on ACB, meaning voting against the Barrett nomination for the Supreme Court and impeachment. So is he right? I don't think so. Because I think most parties would rather put forth the the United Front, particularly right after a big you know presidential victory. This is what Democrats should be feeling good, and there are some that are feeling good. But honestly, you know, the most prominent ones are, are you know, like on the one hand, this our view may be skewed by the fact that the media prefers to cover conflict because it's news. Everybody's getting along. You're never going to pick up your 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 newspaper and it's going to say everything's fine today. <laughs> you know, nothing to worry about. You know, the conflict is news, but I, I do kind of think that, um, and again, we're, we're talking about the two figures who represent the opposite poll, so we shouldn't expect these two figures to get along. But I do think it's been interesting how quickly this flared up and stuff like the Spanberger call indicate that this is real and that you're going to see real fights within the uh, Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee uh, about coming up towards the midterms of like, just what stances do we want to take? And even I think it was Matt Iglesias is saying, why do a quartet of backbenchers get more than half of the coverage of, of the U.S. House these days? Even, you know, Iglesias, by the way, is leaving Vox. But uh, even some people are saying, wait a minute, these guys, really they don't, they don't chair committees. They don't really control anything. And yet they get an enormous section of the coverage of this, which probably ends up working better for Republicans than it does for Democrats. I think AOC and the squad get coverage because that's where a lot of folks in the media want to see the national debate going. I mean, if you look at most mainstream news outlets, they spend a lot of time focusing on Republicans that they think will make Republicans look bad. And they spend a lot of time focusing on Democrats that will either make Democrats look good or move the agenda in the direction that a lot of media outlets want to see the agenda go. Yeah. I mean, the side effect of that is that, you know, if you're trying to elect Republicans, do you want a lot of coverage of Louis Gomer? The media, by you know, wish casting and by believing that Alexander Ocasio-Cortez is this great, innovative voice of a new generation and putting her on the cover of Vanity Fair and all that kind of stuff, like I have no idea how much that alienates people, particularly the kinds of you know Democrats who uh, need to be like a Joe Manchin if they want to win. You know, thank goodness they're not profiling the you know that. You know, he's not there anymore, but the he Schulers of the world. That would actually make it probably tougher for Republicans to win races down the road. Wow. Well, as long as they keep not learning their lesson, uh, I guess that's perhaps a good, a good martini <laughs> well, and a good way. At least there's one thing we can count on, even, <laughs> even in 2020. Oh, man. Jim, another busy week. We'll see you on Monday. <laughs> see you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Do not forget to subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch if you don't already. And thank you in advance for your very kind reviews and your five-star ratings. Those are very important to us. Also, please get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Have a great day. Have a great weekend. And we'll catch you Monday on the Three Martini Lunch.